This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Melanie Watsko, a PhD student and job market candidate at Stanford University. Today, we are going to talk about her paper, Entrepreneurial Spillovers Across Coworkers. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Melanie, as the title makes very clear, this paper studies how the propensity to become an entrepreneur of an individual is affected by the co-workers of that individual, specifically the prior entrepreneurship experience of these co-workers. And you mentioned in the uh, first paragraph that this is not the first paper studying these spillovers in entrepreneurship. So I want to um, take you back to an earlier study that I read actually many years ago by Nanda and Sorensen, a paper from 2010, which also studies spillovers uh, among co-workers. I was wondering whether you could describe briefly what that earlier paper does and what is the objective of your study in terms of expanding on that previous knowledge? Perfect. Yeah. So Nanda and Sorensen 2010 is absolutely kind of the inspiration for my paper. They're going to study in the context of Denmark, entrepreneurial spillovers across coworkers. So similar to my paper. So they're basically looking if an individual works with more people who have entrepreneurial experience, are they more likely to become an entrepreneur themselves? And they're going to see positive spillovers. So individuals who work with more entrepreneurial coworkers in Denmark, they're more likely to become entrepreneurs. Um, that's kind of the extent of the paper. They're not able to look at kind of what types of firms we get out of those spillovers, which is where my paper is going to come in. I'm going to look at kind of first both, yes, are you more likely to become an entrepreneur if you work with entrepreneurial coworkers? So are there positive or negative extensive margin spillovers? But then additionally, I'm going to bring in lots and lots of firm data to think about the types of firms we got out of these spillovers. And thinking about the types of firms that we get out of these spillovers is going to be really important for studying both kind of the mechanisms, what's being spilled over, what's being transmitted, as well as the implications. Are these spillovers generating lots of small passion projects or are they generating productivity enhancing firms? One thing that is important, as you said, is that their study is from Denmark. Your study is going to be from the U.S., but in both cases, it's a full economy. Although, of course, Denmark could fit into the pocket of California, if you want, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still a whole country. Is the fact that the context is a different one something that you were also interested in? I was certainly curious of, of you know, yeah, how would things look different in the U.S.? Um, in many ways, at least at the extensive margin, they do look similar. We're also going to be studying, right? I'm also going to be studying these broad kind of everyday spillovers that average individuals are facing in the economy. And so in that sense, the U.S. does look relatively similar to Denmark. But of course, the U.S. is going to have some more variation in the types of individuals. We have you know, more and more immigrants. We have more uh, diversity. And so I'll be able to study additional heterogeneity along those lines. So you said the extensive margin, which is going to be the first part of your paper. And then you are going to study the intensive margin, uh, which is a conditional becoming an entrepreneur. What are the characteristics of, of these new firms, in particular how successful they are, maybe other things as well, but most important, how successful they are. One important objective of comparing these two types of regressions, uh, you say in the paper, and I think it's, it's, it's obviously a very important part, is in terms of understanding what is the mechanism through which these spillovers that take place across co-workers uh, operate. And I was wondering whether you could describe the different mechanisms that you have in mind and 
uh, also uh, how you were hoping that the use of these two regressions, extensive versus intensive margin, will allow you to discriminate between these two types of spillovers. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you say, we're going to think about both the extensive and intensive margin, which is going to be informative because there could be lots of things that entrepreneurial coworkers are are teaching you or or just generally affecting you through. Broadly, in the paper, I'm going to think about two different types of, of spillovers that could be happening. The first, so if we just take it, if we assume, which I'm going to find in the paper, that that there are positive spillovers, entrepreneurial coworkers do seem to promote or encourage entrepreneurship. We could think that they're doing that through two different combinations or a combination of two different uh, things. The first is that they could be kind of inspiring or, or, or encouraging entrepreneurship, but not affecting the productivity of firms. So for instance, they could be simply describing the joys of being their own boss. They could be teaching kind of the startup logistics of how do you actually register a business? How do you get your tax IDs, things like that. Um, you know, they could be, you know, helping discern how much uncertainty there is as an entrepreneur. And so those sorts of spillovers, which in the paper I call spillovers of institutional knowledge, those spillovers are going to, on average, encourage entrepreneurship, but not necessarily increase the productivity of firms. We don't get more successful firms through those spillovers. On the other hand, there's another type of spillover of actual skills. We're going to think of those as, I'll call those entrepreneurial skills. We could think of this as entrepreneurial coworkers teaching, you know, how do you actually market your business? business plan? How do you just develop a good business? How do you find productive workers? How do you, you know, uh, connect to supply chains, things like that. Things that actually increase the productivity and the success of businesses. And so these spillovers could actually generate successful businesses. By looking at the extensive and intensive margin, we're going to be able to think about whether both of these are relevant and when they're relevant. So by looking at the extensive margin, just are, if you work with more entrepreneurial coworkers, are you more likely to become an entrepreneur? That's going to teach us whether or not there are positive spillovers on average? Does it look like working with more entrepreneurial coworkers, all those entrepreneurial coworkers doing something to encourage you, which could be institutional knowledge or entrepreneurial skills? Then I turn to the intensive margin. So conditionally becoming an entrepreneur, are the characteristics of your firm different if you worked with more entrepreneurial coworkers? And here I'm going to specifically look at exposure to entrepreneurial coworkers and exposure to entrepreneurial coworkers who started relatively successful firms. The idea here is going to be that those successful coworkers may be especially likely to teach those entrepreneurial skills because they actually ran relatively successful firms themselves. And so we'll look and see in the intensive margin, does the characteristics of your coworkers who started firms, does the characteristics of their firms predict the characteristics of your firms? And in that section, again, we'll be thinking about, is it entrepreneurial skills that's being transmitted, institutional knowledge, or some combination of both? So you are using words uh, for these uh, different effects that are more grounded in the actual empirical setting that you use. But another way that you sometimes use them in the paper and a way that is standard for economists to, to think about them is in terms of a selection model, mm -hmm. the cost of entry and then the productivity upon entry or yes. the profits upon entry. I mean, we can call them institutional knowledge or skills or whatever, but in some sense, what the regressions and then the model are pointing out in, in the more like in the broader sense, if, if you want, is the cost of entry, the extensive margin versus productivity upon entry, or let me say it differently. The extensive margin captures the cost of entry plus the success upon entry, whereas you argue the intensive margin captures 
resource only, the productivity upon entry after we take out the potentially negative selection effects. So that, that will be, you know, a way that people that are not particularly grounded in the entrepreneurship literature can think, but our economists can think about, about these two effects. Absolutely. So typically, or, or sometimes I ask people to tell me what their data is. But if I ask you what the data set is, we're going to spend three hours here. Because <laughs> you have like a, you know, an almost infinite array of data sets that you use, merge them with each other mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and everything. Let's just say that your data is very rich. Maybe mm-hmm. we can talk about the dimensions in which it is very rich as needed along the way. Basically, it covers a lot of American citizens who work in firms. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it is better to discuss what is the sample that you use to run the first type of regression. That is the regression on the extensive margin on the likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur, depending on whether the coworkers have entrepreneurship experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to be looking at, yes. so so this is all based on U.S. census data, and we're going to be looking at effectively the near universe of employed workers. Um, specifically, I'm going to be looking at 18 states for which I can go back in time pretty far. This constitutes about 47 million people that we're going to look at in 2004 and ask, are you more likely to become an entrepreneur in the next five years if your coworkers in 2004 have experience of entrepreneurship? So what that means is that we have a really broad cross-section of the economy. We've got all different types of people, all different types of industries. And we're going to ask, you know, if you are exposed to people who recently started their own firm, do they teach you something or encourage you in some way that leads you to start your own firm in the next five years? So the dependent variable, as you just mentioned, Adam is studying whether you become an entrepreneur after 2004 or not, the independent variable is the share of co-workers in your firm that have uh, entrepreneurship experience. So the empirical strategy here is essentially going to be like a multiple regression with a, a very rich set of controls. Could you describe what controls you include? Because obviously they are going to be, you know, critical to enhance the credibility of your strategy. Absolutely. So yes, this is going to be a selection on observables argument. We will eventually do a bunch of robustness things, but the baseline specification is again going to be for the extensive margin is going to be, are you more likely to become an entrepreneur? If you work with more entrepreneurial coworkers, conditional a bunch of controls where the controls are going to be things that importantly could correlate both with the exposure and the outcome of you becoming an entrepreneur. So we're going to control for the size of where you're working. So how many employees are at the establishment you're working at? We're going to control for your earnings. We're going to control for your past entrepreneurial experience. And then we're also going to control for lots and lots of demographic characteristics. We've got race and sex and immigration status and and education, as well as age, industry, and state fixed effects. So the basic idea here is going to be that we're going to look at two people who are very, very similar in terms of they, they have the same demographics. They work at very similar firms, similar establishments, but one of them just happens to have more entrepreneurial coworkers. And we're going to ask, are they more likely to become an entrepreneur themselves. Uh, what is the main baseline result that uh, you get specifically with respect to this regression? Yeah. So so the main baseline result is going to be that if an individual, so conditional all those controls, if they work with a one standard deviation, higher share of coworkers who are entrepreneurs, that's about a 10% higher share of entrepreneurial coworkers, that individual is going to be about 8% more likely to become an entrepreneur in the next five years relative to the mean. So that's a, uh, a relatively large effect. It's actually comparable to the literature. And so that means that there is 
is evidence of these positive spillovers that are, are meaningful. So as, as you mentioned, the hope here is that after adding all the controls that you add, the presence of co-worker entrepreneurs can be regarded as exogenous or random, essentially uncorrelated with the error term. And one thing that I really like about the paper is that you are very open in it about the many things that can go wrong with this assumption. You know, some of the things are maybe things that you have to think about because somebody might ask them in a seminar, <laughs> like the spawning exposure to leaders or workplace culture interpretations. I myself don't take them very seriously. Therefore, there are a couple of things that I want to specifically ask you about because they seem like the first order effects. Uh, mm-hmm. You also devote more attention to them in the paper. So uh, first of all, the selection into peer groups, potential uh, concern. Could you briefly describe what this concern is and what tests you run to alleviate this concern? Yeah, so so selection is going to, to me at least, be the biggest concern for this paper in terms of identification. So the basic concern here is that, yes, we're controlling for lots of things and we're, you know, we're trying to compare people who are have very similar experiences similar demographics, they work at similar firms. But the fact that they have different types of coworkers might simply reflect that people who are entrepreneurial types or people who are prone towards entrepreneurship might just happen to select into being at particular firms or particular establishments or, or in particular peer groups. And so the fact that I you know, observe and measure these spillovers across coworkers might not actually reflect that there's anything going on with the coworkers, but it might be about basically where they are. And so to, to think about whether or not this is driving the results, I'm going to do basically a bunch of different robustness tests. Uh, a couple of them that I want to mention are first, we'll ask, you know, okay, is it is it really just that they happen to be selecting into particular firms? If that was the case, that we just have lots of entrepreneur type people going to particular firms, then there should be nothing special about your actual coworkers who you actually work with, as opposed to just people at the firm. So, so one thing that's really nice about my data is that I do know both approximately the establishment you work at, as well as the parent company, the firm that actually owns the whole establishments. And so with this context, we can see that you're much more likely to become an entrepreneur if you work with entrepreneurial coworkers at your establishment. So people who are at the same location to you, people who you should actually run into versus people who are just employed by the same firm, but who are a different location than you. So there's something special about the establishment. It's not just a firm effect. Next, we can think about, well, maybe it's selection into particular establishments. Like maybe it's entrepreneurial type people just happen to go to headquarters. They all go to go to a particular location. And, and so thinking about firm versus establishment, maybe that doesn't bias anything. And in this case, I can actually kind of borrow a technique from, for instance, Nandan Sorensen and think about, well, are you more likely to become an entrepreneur if people who also selected to be at the same establishment, but in a different time, do you learn from them? So specifically, I'm going to look and see if suppose you join the firm or you join your establishment in 2004, are you more likely to become an entrepreneur if people who worked at that establishment in the past, so for instance, 2003, 2002, and have since left, if those people were entrepreneurs? So the idea here is going to be that people who also selected to be at the same establishment as you, for instance, the headquarters of a firm, but you don't actually overlap with them because they, they were employed at a different time, it shouldn't look like you're actually learning from them. And so indeed, what I'm going to find is that these spillovers are going to be concentrated amongst the coworkers that you actually overlap with at establishments. And so there's something special about those people who are there at the same time as you. So it's not about just selecting into the establishment on average or something like that. Um, The final thing I'll mention is that, well, okay, that's all, all, all well and good. There's something special about the establishment. There's something special about the time you're there. 
but maybe you're actually, you know, selecting to be with particular coworkers. You know, maybe you, your friend who also is just, you're an entrepreneurial type person, your friend is entrepreneurial. They work at some place, you go to, you know, join, you, you go and be their coworker. Um, in which case there's no learning. You just all happen to select to be with each other. To, to see whether that's driving the results, I can look at whether or not people also seem to learn from entrepreneurial coworkers who join their establishment after them. So people they should not have been able to know were going to be there when they joined the establishment. So at least could not have selected on when they joined their establishment. And in that situation, indeed, we're going to see that the spillovers are, are, are also happening across these coworkers who join after you join. And so it doesn't seem like these results are going to be driven by selection into having particular coworkers. So I'm going to repeat briefly the three things yes. because, you know, it's important to keep them in mind. Uh, number one, the effect of coworkers in the actual establishment is stronger than the effect of coworkers in other establishments of the, of the same firm. Number two, the effect of coworkers who overlap with the focus worker is stronger than the effect of, let's call them, as you do, placebo coworkers who do not actually become coworkers because they join or leave the same establishment while not actually overlapping in time. That's number two. Uh, number three, the effect of co-workers who join, overlap and join after the focus worker is either as big or also big as the ones that were already there when the worker joined, which implies that it was not the focus worker that was chasing particular co-workers uh, to learn from them. So I want to go to the second type, uh, the, the second argument that you mentioned and that I just summarized, because one thing that I found surprising is that the effect of these placebo co-workers is actually not zero. And then I went back to the paper of Nanda Sorensen, and I found that even in the paper, it's not zero. So to me, that sounds a little bit surprising because the theoretical, the conceptual effect of these placebo co-workers, I agree with you, should not only be smaller than the one of co-workers who actually overlapped with the focus worker, but indeed should be zero because obviously the focus co-worker hasn't had the opportunity to learn anything from them. So I was wondering whether the fact that it is not zero implies that maybe there is some type of residual bias that remains there after having included uh, all these effects and whether you think that that coefficient is capturing the effect of the bias and then the difference between that coefficient and the one of the actual co-workers is the actual spillover effect or how you interpret the relative effect or the absolute effect of the placebo co-worker? Yeah, so, so there's there's a couple of reasons why those placebo co-workers can still have observably positive effects on your likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur. The first is that, well, it's entirely possible that, that they're teaching something to co-workers, to, to their co-workers who continue on in the firm. And so we could have a chain reaction across co-workers who, you know, the, the past co-workers of those placebo co-workers, they could then teach something in the future. So, so maybe that all goes through and that would be fine. The second thing is that it's entirely possible, and, and I'm, I'm not against this, that, that there actually is something special about establishments, that maybe establishments do have effects. There is a, there's a literature, um, you know, we don't want to need to get into it, but on kind of spawning and things 
like that, where there is absolutely a sense that firms and establishments can impact the likelihood of their co or their workers becoming entrepreneurs by, by teaching them things, by providing wealth, things like that. Um, and so the fact that these co-workers or these non-co-workers, these placebo co-workers do have a positive coefficient, that might kind of say that there is something special about the establishment. And, and certainly if you want to take that effect literally in my paper, one thing you can simply do is, is basically downgrade or, or just uh, reduce my effect by, by the ratio. So I think it's about, uh, you know, you maybe drop it by a third or something like that. So instead of an 8% increase relative to the mean, we could go to a 5% increase relative to the mean or something like that. Um, all that's to say is that there absolutely is space for, for firms and establishments to impact the likelihood of, of entrepreneurship. In my paper, it just means that they don't, these sorts of effects don't seem to drive the results that I have. And so for the context of my paper, we're going to focus on those spillovers across coworkers. But, but if we wanted to be more conservative, we could absolutely just uh, reduce the coefficient a little bit. Is this something that you will do also for the first of the effects? Because the effect of coworkers with entrepreneurship experience in other establishments of the same firm is also not zero. So that again may tell us that maybe there is something about the firm that uh, yeah. is, you know, perhaps not fully accounted for like some type of, a, I don't know, spawning or some type of firm effect on entrepreneurship that uh, is, is broader than just the, the co-worker experience. Yes, there's entirely, it's entirely possible that firms do impact people's decisions to become entrepreneurs. Um, I'm not going to argue against that. I, I believe that is true. Again, it's not going to seem, seem to drive my results. But if you wanted to, again, you could simply reduce my coefficient of my RAIN results. In that context, the firm effects or the, the, the effect of coworkers outside the firms or outside the establishment, same firm, that's about one ninth of the size of my coefficient. And so you could just drop my coefficient down a little bit if you wanted to be conservative. So one of the things that Nanda and Sorensen uh, do in their paper is that at some point, they run a conditional fixed effects logic. And this is great in that, I mean, as the name indicates, the, the fixed effects logic is able to control for the fixed effect of the individual. So mm -hmm. they restrict the sample to individuals who eventually become entrepreneurs, and then they study whether the timing at which they become entrepreneurs is affected by the presence of entrepreneurial co-workers. I was wondering, I have to say, the paper has, I think, 15 tables in the main body, another 27 tables in the appendix. It is possible that you have run this uh, test somewhere and I haven't seen it. Therefore, let me ask you, have you run have that type of test or have you thought of running it? Because, because these type of tests are more demanding on the data. I will presume that you are much better situated to run this test with your enormous American data set than they were with their tiny Denmark country. Thank you. Yeah, I think that is a great suggestion. I have run that. It's just currently uh, behind the firewall at the census, so I don't have it in the paper yet, but I will add it eventually for publication. Um, I can say that that I'm not too concerned with that sort of uh, contradicting my results. So that was the, the first type of like a potentially confounding uh, effect and the one that you said you were most worried about. There is another one that you call uh, the potential bias arising from common shocks. Uh, could mm -hmm. you describe what that is and, and the, the associated test that you ran? Yeah. So, so right. Again, you know, my results, my, my primary specifications are already going to be controlling for really rich industry as well as state fixed effects. But we might be worried that there's something kind of special about a particular location or industry or something happening such that there's just lots of entrepreneurship happening. So, for instance, you could have a, you know, a, a local local uh, governance change or you could have um, a business cycle 
happening within an industry such that maybe there's just fluctuations in entrepreneurship, generating lots of previous entrepreneurship by coworkers and lots of future entrepreneurship by individuals. Again, my primary specifications are already including industry fixed effects. And, and those are six digit NAICs for people in this, in, in this, uh, in this literature. Um, and for those not in the literature, I'll basically say that's like the distinction between do you sell new cars versus used cars? So it's very fine. Um, but, but we might be worried that there's something, you know, it's not just about being in a specific industry or a specific, specific state, but some combination. I can run, of course, industry by state fixed effects, add those, everything goes through. And additionally, what's actually quite nice about, about combining my census data with some other census data is that I can, for about half of my sample, actually get zip code locations for establishments. And so for half my sample, I can go ahead and add zip code fixed effects and zip code by industry fixed effects. So if you were really worried that, you know, maybe this is just a Silicon Valley effect where, where, or something like that, where there's a particular location, particularly industry where there's just lots of entrepreneurship happening, those zip code by industry fixed effects should take that into account. And indeed, adding those controls, if, actually, if anything, actually increases the size of the coefficient. So at least along these dimensions, it doesn't look like these sorts of common shocks that just promote entrepreneurship in general are going to be driving the result. I would say that adding these location fixed effects that are more narrow, I think that this is quite important because industry fixed effects at the six-digit level, that is very narrow. That is, but adding state fixed effects that, you know, like one of the states, as, as we mentioned, is uh, is California. Mm-hmm. Putting a dummy for California would be equivalent to Nanda and Sorensen using their data from Denmark and then putting a dummy for Scandinavia. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it, it wouldn't it seem that this is kind of enough, you know, but obviously the zip code, that is very different. You have some main, uh, some heterogeneity results. I don't mm-hmm. want, I mean, you have many of them. Is there any in particular that you want to emphasize uh, with respect to this like uh, extensive margin? Yeah, I think the main one that is important to emphasize is that contrary to, to for instance, another paper in the literature, Lerner and Malmendier, we don't actually see evidence of the successful coworkers discouraging entrepreneurship. So, so let me break that down. You might be concerned when, when we get to the intensive margin results, so I don't want to preview too much, but when we get to the intensive margin results, as I mentioned from the conceptual idea is that we we are going to look at exposure to coworkers who are relatively successful. Um, and you might be worried that the people who are relatively successful, that they can simply discourage bad ideas, that they can, you know, pick out the bad ventures and say, don't do that. Um, which could kind of impact the interpretation later down the road. And so one of the heterogeneities that I can look at is ask if your coworkers start relatively successful firms, how does that impact your likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur? And what I'm going to see is that actually those successful coworkers do give you a marginal boost to becoming an entrepreneur. And so uh, if anything, those successful people actually actually give you an additional likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur. So the Lerner Malmendier paper, I didn't mention it earlier, because I am not sure that it is so related to this setting in that their their setting is one in which uh, the individuals are learning from other students in the same MBA Mm -hmm. program rather than co-workers. This is like a different population, a different situation. This is, you know, this is the reason that I think that Nanda and Sorensen is, you know, the the, the closest paper. But if if we were to compare it, one thing that I would say is that there are two differences with respect to your current setting. Number one is, the peers are more successful, but number two is that the focus individuals are also more successful, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, so 
if if you want to do that comparison, it's important to also look at the heterogeneity by the skill of the individual, because obviously MBA students in Stanford or Harvard or wherever their study was, clearly these are not, you know, the general mm-hmm. population and they may already have low barriers to entry or high productivity, mm-hmm. you know, like they may not be able to benefit so much from some of the spillovers that are the focus of your paper. Yeah, absolutely. And so certainly one thing that's nice in my paper is that because I'm looking at the general population, we can we can take different slices of the population and ask whether they're, they're experiencing spillovers. And certainly one thing I can look at is look at just do people of different earnings, do they experience spillovers? It does look like most of the earnings distribution is subject to these spillovers. So it's not concentrated amongst the, the elites. This is something that's impacting kind of uh, lower wage workers, lower educated workers, Workers, uh, which makes a lot of sense because in reality, a lot of these spillovers are basically going to be prompting, you know, more construction firms, more, more restaurants, more hotels, things that, that, that are kind of small businesses that are not necessarily run by these elite MBA educated individuals. So we move now to the second part of the study. And the, as, as we mentioned earlier, in some sense, this is the main added value section, because as we have discussed, the finding that there are some spillovers is already there in the literature. So a big emphasis of the paper is in trying to disentangle the mechanisms. And here, the intensive margin regressions are really going to do a lot of work. Could you describe what is the sample that you use for these intensive margin regressions? Absolutely. So so recall that in my extensive margin, we were taking people in 2004 and asking, do they become entrepreneurs in the next five years? When we turn to the intensive margin, we're going to ask, okay, for the people who do become entrepreneurs, so they do start a firm between 2005 and 2009, what does their firms look like? What are the characteristics of their firms? So this is going to be about 1.5 million individuals. So we still have a lot of power and a lot of heterogeneity. And we're going to ask, okay, the people who become entrepreneurs the next five years, are their firms, for instance, bigger, longer surviving, more innovative, things like that? If A, they worked with more entrepreneurial coworkers, and B, if those entrepreneurial coworkers themselves started relatively successful firms. And what are the findings in terms of these, uh, these regressions? So the general patterns that we see by looking across a bunch of different outcomes is that if an individual works with more entrepreneurial coworkers, just in general, so more coworkers who recently started their own firm, and then they go on to start another firm, they tend to start less successful firms. Their firms are smaller. They don't survive very long. They're not particularly innovative and so forth. That's going to be consistent with these people simply kind of being inspired, being prompted towards entrepreneurship, but not being kind of taught the secrets to success. So so in the language I used earlier, this is going to be spillovers of institutional knowledge, or simply put, their cost to entry has been lowered. On the other hand, conditional on this general exposure, if those coworkers that you worked with, if they started relatively successful firms and presumably kind of know some of those skills, they have skills that make them better entrepreneurs, If you work with those people and you become an entrepreneur, you're going to be more likely to become a successful entrepreneur as well. Your firm is bigger, it survives longer, and so forth. That's going to be consistent with these special successful entrepreneurial coworkers actually teaching some entrepreneurial skills, actually increasing your productivity as an entrepreneur, such that these sorts of spillovers actually increase the productivity of firms. So one thing that you have not mentioned in detail, but that I I want to discuss is your measures of success. So you use whether the firm survives beyond the first year 
and uh, whether the firm is in the top 10% of the employment or payroll or revenue of the firm that entered in this in the same year. And like I am not very entrepreneurship prone myself. But if I was like in the margin of thinking of becoming an entrepreneur and they told me, don't worry, Jordi, there are X percent chances that you're going to survive beyond the first year, I wouldn't really be very reassured. Like I wouldn't regard this as a measure of success of success by itself. I would think that, I don't know, surviving 10 years or earning more than I was earning as a as a way, uh, as, as an employee. These are measures of success. But the one that you seem to have here is, is quite is quite a low threshold, if you want. I was wondering why you use this as a measure, given that you have so much data, particularly you could have been a little bit narrower or more demanding in, the, in defining success. I think that the optimal, maybe the optimal, the absolute optimal outcome we could have would be the person's welfare, right? <laughs> are they having a good life as an entrepreneur? Um, or, or ideally kind of profit from firms, which we unfortunately don't have great input cost data within the census for, for all industries. So we're not able to construct that fully. One thing I do actually include is I do look at the earnings of people, their labor earnings as an entrepreneur. And that's something where that actually completely looks like the other outcomes. General exposure means that you earn less as an entrepreneur as well in your labor earnings. Um, so in that sense, you know, within with an individual, they, what they're taking home at the end of the day does also seem to be lower than they what they took uh, as a worker. Now, you know, the reason why I went with the ones that I did in some ways that those were kind of what was easily available within the data. And it's something that I also work with in the firm dynamics literature. And these are quite standard, uh, you know, just looking at firm size, survival, things like that is something that's that's very common. Certainly, you know, I think that there is taking a step back, there is absolutely a, a bit of a a wonder of, of why people become entrepreneurs, because certainly in my context, only about 50% of the firms survive to age five. And so, you know, it's it's frankly a wonder why many of these people are starting firms. You know, lots of these firms exit, presumably they're not getting that much out of them. Of course, maybe they love being their own boss, so I can't measure that. And so that that's just generally a kind of a puzzle that, that people in this literature don't quite know what to do with. People either have to be behaving really irrationally or really value really odd uh, expectations. Um, but, but I thought that these were kind of a nice first order approximation. In the future, I do actually hope to bring in some additional firm outcomes data. So for instance, for firms that are particularly successful, we might be able to bring in, you know, uh, more and more kind of uh, high grade financing or patenting data or something to try to get more at kind of some of the fancier outcomes. But, but certainly kind of looking at just the individual's earnings, I think is going to be kind of maybe the most basic thing. And that is in the paper. I agree. I agree that using patents or things like that is not going to be very meaningful for the average uh, firm, you know? So earnings, earnings and survive, these type of things seem reasonable. It's just, I, I was thinking more about the threshold rather than the use of these variables specifically. I do include in the paper just, just the size itself. So instead of looking at these kind of top 10% or something like that, and, and the results are all very similar. At the end of the day, I am limited in how many things I can take out of the census. So, so I went with what I have, but, I, but I'm uh, happy to keep exploring. So certainly we'll keep looking into it. So your interpretation here, like in, in combining two effects of a co-worker entrepreneurs on the success of firms, depending on whether these entrepreneurs were successful or not, is that all types of entrepreneurs can teach how to decrease the cost of entry. Thereby, they create negative selection uh, into entry into entrepreneurship because now it is worse types 
who enter as their cost was lower. And that explains the main result that receiving spillovers from co-worker entrepreneurs decreases access upon entry. Then you have, this is the second effect that you mentioned, that working with more successful entrepreneurs increases the entry, but does not decrease the success upon entry. But I was wondering whether it should not increase the success rather than not decrease it. Because if my interpretation is correct, this seems like an interaction in which more successful entrepreneurs, they do not make the coefficient positive. They make it back to zero in some sense. Uh, wouldn't you have expected that there are at least some co-workers that are doing better uh, in terms of their productivity of their firms when they happen to match with certain people? Yeah, so so there I think it depends a little bit on the outcome of, of what the whether it shakes out that kind of having these relatively successful co-workers, if it simply dampens the negative effect versus if it actually makes you, you know, really a, a great entrepreneur. In some capacity, the exposure to entrepreneurial co-workers who are relatively successful is actually just quite rare. And so in reality, they they don't have that much bite. Now that said, for instance, you know, just to quote one of the numbers, I think if you if you work with one standard deviation higher share of coworkers who were just recently entrepreneurs in general, that means that your firm is going to be about 5% smaller in terms of employment. But on the other hand, if all of those coworkers were successful, as in they started really big firms, then your firm is predicted to be 5% larger. So in that case, you do have this, this positive uh, productivity spillover. It does just matter a little bit across the outcomes. Um, and, and again, just to, to remember that, you know, the average entrepreneurial coworker is going to be less successful. And so most of these people are not going to have access to these really successful ones. Uh, this is also in some sense because the average entrepreneur who is now not an entrepreneur and therefore mm-hmm. working in a firm in yeah. order to be able to create these spillovers. You know, like you are here comparing between two types of not very successful entrepreneurs because the ones right. who really are do not have co-workers anymore. Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely that, you know, most of these co-workers, uh, their firms exited or or they have left it or 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 maybe they're still employed there, but they're, they're getting most of their earnings from their new location. Some of them are going to actually be the boss of the current location. Um, but yeah, so, so certainly the capacity for these amazing spillovers is going to be limited. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the paper is setting an irrelevant context because these are spillovers that are still happening day to day. They may not be generating great firms, but they're still happening. And so in that context, we might actually, you know, we can see when we go to the model, but but we might actually be interested in, in you know, really only trying to have the spillovers that generate great firms happen um, as opposed to having these, uh, these kind of not so great spillovers. So one thing, uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but one thing that I think is is critical here is let me say it again uh, all entrepreneurs decrease the entry cost but mm-hmm. only the relatively more successful increase the productivity upon entry hence your ability to to use the different findings of the extensive intensive margin to provide validity for your mechanisms but I was wondering about uh, the following interpretation so mm-hmm. imagine that we have uh, two types of individuals so high skill and low skill and mm-hmm. for the sake of the argument let's imagine that you have not control accurately for for this with all your mm-hmm. controls and everything the high skill individuals work with other high skill individuals and these co-workers who are high skill if they have been entrepreneurs in the past they have been more successful just because high skill people are more successful mm-hmm. at everything let's say now the high skill individuals are also going to be more successful if they decide to enter entrepreneurship 
because they themselves are higher types and their actual options are much better. Now we have a setting in which entrepreneurship of co-workers is randomly allocated. And we still believe the first part of the paper, but imagine that it only decreases the entry cost. Mm-hmm. In that model of the you know world that I gave you, maybe being connected to more successful entrepreneurs is a proxy for being a higher type who is mm-hmm. anyway going to be more successful upon entry rather than for you know the spillovers along the skill dimension that you were mm-hmm. mentioning earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So in other words, even if I've kind of hopefully shown or you know not not quite proven, but but shown identification for the extensive margin, we might not have identification for the intent margin. Um, would-be successful entrepreneurs might select to being with, with successful entrepreneurs. What I can do to try to see that that is not necessarily going to be driving the results, um, what's currently in the paper is, well, I'll just remind you that we are already controlling for the earnings of individuals. So if we think that that kind of correlates, and it does seem to correlate with uh, productivity as an entrepreneur, uh, that, that's maybe taken care of. Additionally, one thing that I think is going to be uh, you know, uh, correlating with these, this sort of selection would be just the type of the firm that you're all at. You and your coworker. And so we know that kind of high human capital individuals tend to go to successful firms. Um, and so we can directly control for the success of the employer in 2004. So you work at that firm in 2004, your employer, your coworkers were relatively successful. They also work at that uh, employer in 2004. And so we can control for, for instance, the productivity, the revenue productivity of that firm. The results are all going to go through. Additionally, Something that I'm that's still locked up in the census, but will end up in the final final draft, is I can basically rerun all of that battery of tests from the extensive margin and ask kind of, well, you know, say say again, you uh, do you learn from from relatively successful coworkers who were there before you, who you didn't overlap with? So we can rerun that placebo test at the ex- intensive margin, and 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 those are still locked away. But but generally speaking, it does look like these results are going to be robust to that, and so this is not all going to be driven by again. Just just having those entrepreneurial coworkers who are really successful, simply indicating that you also would be successful. I am uh, sweating to think that the paper is going to have um, 55 papers <laughs> in the appendix rather than just 27. <laughs> Whenever... There might be a really long online appendix at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> Census regressions make it yeah. into the... So you were mentioning that you have like a, a model mm-hmm. that uh, allows you to understand how important these things are in general for the economy. If I, I don't don't really understand models very well, but if I understood it more or less, one big thing that the model takes into account is the fact that from a general equilibrium perspective, the weight is endogenous, something that from in a partial equilibrium it is not. Can you just describe what are the main objectives of uh, this uh, type of uh, calibration and what you find from that? Yeah, so indeed, you know, the partial equilibrium results, which is all the extensive and the intensive margin results, those are all reduced form. Those are going to tell us about kind of the marginal spillover, what's happening on all these margins. If we want to, at the end of the day, say something about how much these spillovers actually matter in the aggregate, we need to go over to a model where we can think about A, counterfactuals, and B, think about some general equilibrium forces. And so in this model, I'm going to model basically the the decision to become an entrepreneur. And we're going to have your decision to become an entrepreneur depend on your productivity and your cost. So this is kind of going back to when we were talking about what could be learning, what what we could be uh, being transmitted in these spillovers. We're going to have some spillovers that increase your productivity and some spillovers that decrease your cost. 
And then as mentioned, we're going to have an equilibrium, a general equilibrium in the labor market. And so we're going to have some wages that offset the capacity of these spillovers. What I'm going to use this model for is basically an accounting exercise. We're going to ask, we're going to calibrate the model so that it, the, basically the moments, what, what happens in the model looks like the data. And we're going to ask if we take away from the model learning from coworkers, what would entrepreneurship look like and, and other outcomes as well? And the main finding is going to be that I'm, I'm going to estimate this over 20 years of data. If we take away learning, then entrepreneurship on average over those 20 years will be about 10% lower than it is. What that means is that these spillovers, you know, they're not going to drive all entrepreneurship, but they do play a non-negligible role in generating entrepreneurship. So basically just that kind of wraps out the paper that, you know, the reduced form, we saw that there was the capacity for these spillovers. They do affect the types of firms we get out. But with this model, we can actually go on to say, well, let's let's sum it up and see how much it matters in the economy with some GE. And indeed, these spillovers play a non-negligible role. But just to be clear, there are no policy prescriptions from this because it's not as if the uh, government might be able to turn on or off these spillovers. This is just something that happens. This is like an exercise to see that in the aggregate, this is important. So certainly that is that is the current interpretation of the model. But I'll say that kind of in a, in a non-prescriptive way that you could take away from the paper is maybe two things. The first is that, well, as we kind of have mentioned, lots of these spillovers they don't necessarily generate amazing firms. And so one thing we could think about would be having the government try to more kind of give feedback and give information to generate more successful firms to kind of counteract that. The second thing you could have is just kind of, you know, we should maybe be aware that these spillovers, because they kind of occur over time, means that if you generated lots of good firms in the past, you know, eventually they'll exit. Most firms do. You know, maybe those coworkers, or so those entrepreneurs, maybe they become coworkers and they can maybe generate better firms in the future. So we could have this kind of cycle that, that maybe we maybe we want to promote this cycle of more more better entrepreneurship uh, over time. Uh, one thing that what you're saying brings to mind is that maybe the mean or the expectation is not really the relevant statistic here because it is possible that the average firm is really bad, but because it dies immediately while generating very little damage for those entrepreneurs, while the very few that happen to survive generate enormous wealth from a mm -hmm. societal perspective, we may want to encourage lots of firms that are terrible mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. the repeated draws from that distribution will give us a few that are fantastic. I don't know whether the setting in which you are studying this, which is the overall economy in which most firms are like a hot dog vendors mm -hmm. will lay itself, you know, to this type of interpretation, mm -hmm. but in principle, that will be. Absolutely. This is, this is the, I mean, that's indicative of kind of the U.S.'s policy on, on entrepreneurship is that it's incredibly hard to, to ex ante decide who's going to be amazing. So we just promote entrepreneurship and hope that somewhere in there, someone starts something amazing. Um, what I can say is that for my future work, I am interested in trying to kind of zone in on these really successful firms and ask, you know, do those entrepreneurs, are they getting anything special out of their, their coworkers in the past. And so I hope to, to explore this more in the future, but certainly, yes, you know, it is a little bit of a gamble. If you're hoping that maybe once in a million, you get that amazing firm, maybe you still want to promote all these spillovers, uh, even if it's a relatively rare event. Very good. Thank you, Melanie, for coming to the program. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today has been Melanie Watzkoff. My name is Jordi blanes and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. 